0: Welcome to Temple Talks, a new podcast from Temple Israel in Minneapolis, where Jewish wisdom meets our ever-changing world.
1: Join us as we talk with our favorite partners and thought leaders from around town and around the world. We hope these talks will inspire you, challenge you, and give us all new ideas about Judaism, religious life, and social justice. I'm sitting here with Rabbi Deborah Waxman, who is the president of Reconstructing Judaism, the central organization of the Jewish Reconstructionist movement. I had the pleasure of overlapping a little bit in rabbinical school when Rabbi Waxman um, was a student and have, have had the opportunity to work with her together over the years. When I've had some leadership roles as, as a volunteer in the Reconstructionist movement as well. Thanks for being here, Deborah. Oh,
0: it's such a blessing to be with you, Jason.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So as we were we were schmoozing this afternoon, we started talking a little bit about um this word movement that seems to be so associated with American Judaism today and coming out of certain European traditions that, that maybe came to this continent and others happening here. You are a historian. I didn't say Deborah Waxman. PhD also, but I think that's in there, but maybe you can start to talk to us a little bit from a historian's perspective about what this, what this means.
0: Well, my, my doctorate's in American Jewish history. I studied history because I I wanted to lead. I wanted to look to the future. I mean, I'll tell you a little story. I graduated from rabbinical school from RRC, the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in 1999. And I uh, was the uh, student, my student pulpit was uh, in Vale, Colorado. I was the student rabbi of B'nai Vale in Vale, Colorado. And they would do um, every Yom Kippur afternoon, they would do an ask the rabbi session. And um, you could, it was a little bit hard on a fasting rabbi who was leading a lot of services. And you could ask the rabbi anything you wanted. And so there I was my senior year of rabbinical school, 1998. And uh, somebody asked me, um, rabbi, what do you think will be the major things that uh, affect the Jewish people in the twenty first century? And I just, I thought, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm a baby Rabbi; I have no idea. And I thought it was a totally legitimate question, and I wanted to be able to answer it, and I wanted to be able to answer it thoughtfully. And that's not the only reason why I went to get my doctorate after I finished rabbinical school, but it was that 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 that. But that was why I studied history. I studied history so that I could understand the future. As now, as a movement leader, when I think about how did we get here? What does it mean that we're here? What does it mean for the future? I go back to the beginnings of modernity. I go back to that moment that everything changed for the Jewish people. In, in pre-modern times, we, we, we lived in a totally separate um, society uh, by choice and also by, because, because Christian or Muslim leaders would enforce it on us and religion was the answer to absolutely everything. It was, it was um, if you had a question about the meaning of life or what you were supposed to do, why things were, the answer was religious. And the authority who handed it down was a, was a religious authority, was a rabbi usually. And, um, and it was just co- absolutely comprehensive. And part of what happened when the modern era started, were, there were two things that happened. One is that there was the rise of scientific thinking and the beginning of rationalism, and there was also there were new structures of government that you know in that pre-modern time we were we Jews were we we were seen and we understood ourselves to be a collective body, and with the rise of modernity became came the idea of an individual citizen. So that just changed everything for us. And part of what happened then was the process of secularization, arising from both of those impulses, rationalism and um, and, and, and new forms of government, and and as science grew, and as different expressions of government emerged, the breadth of authority that religion had began to shrink, where religion in pre-modern times was the the answer and the pathway toward absolutely everything. In the modern era, more and more and more, religion became a smaller uh, and less influential part of people's lives, so that it came to the point that by about the late 19th century, religion really kind of just answered the questions of what we were supposed to do in our in our home and in our private life. So all of the movements from the reform movement to the orthodox movement to conservative to reconstructionist were all actually trying to re knit together. Jews from from individual citizens into a larger collection. Also, I would say this is true of Zionism and Bundism, other political expressions as well, trying to re-knit the Jewish individuals together into a meaningful Jewish collective, and also to, especially for the religious movements, I mean, Zionism said, no, religion's dead especially in the Eastern European political traditions, many, many predominant expressions of Zionism said, the answer should be a political answer. For the religious movements, it was to say um, the answers are religious and we're seeking greater influence beyond just what happens in the home. We're seeking to provide answers to the why questions and the how questions outside of the home as well as in the home.
1: So it just sounds like 100 years or so after the French Revolution, things kind of shifted the other way, you know, in a way that if, if, if we talk about sort of the, the emergence of reform Judaism as being associated with putting so much of Jewish expression in synagogues, as, as opposed to the home that a hundred years later, we're all um, across movements kind of asking different kinds of questions.
0: I think that's exactly right. I mean, the reform movement started in Europe in like the 1820s and there were expressions of it here in America as well that were both parallel and connected. Um, But it started in the 1820s and with the greater articulation, you know, um, reform movement embraced individualism and individual autonomy as as a deeply held principle uh, and and, and said, you know, we should should be uh, Jews in our home and Germans on on the street. Orthodoxy didn't really exist as a phenomenon. In pre-modern times, there was just Judaism with no modifier at all. And I think uh, this is one of my favorite insights that in the pre-modern time, Judaism, the religion and Jewishness, what it meant to be Jewish, they were fused, they were one and the same. And part of what modernity created for us was a, sep- a a separation. The thing that united them were the Jewish people, but we would all negotiate it very, very differently. And that's where we, when we started to get the qualifiers and the adjectives, because there were all these different ways to be Jewish, um, and so what? As, as Reform Judaism in Europe started to take shape, that's when we started to get Orthodoxy. Samson Raphael Hirsch and modern Orthodoxy in the eighteen forties and fifties, and it played out here in America, where the founder of Reform Judaism, Isaac Mayer Wise, he 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 thought it was American Judaism. He thought he was putting forward a global and comprehensive understanding of Judaism that would work for all Americans. And as it started to get articulated and formulated, there were people who reacted, which strengthened orthodoxy and led to the emergence of conservatism. So too Mordecai Kaplan, the founder of Reconstructionism, he thought what he was putting out would work for all Jews. He was putting out a methodology and an approach that he thought would work. He wanted there to be reform Reconstructionist Jews and conservative Reconstructionist Jews and Orthodox Reconstructionist Jews. And indeed, I do hear people from across denominations saying, oh, I really resonate with Reconstructionist ideology or with Reconstructionist approach, even though my home, my, either my ideological home or my social home, the people I want to I make my life with are, are, exist in a different movement.
1: It also seems like there's something very human about Sometimes it's easier for us to say what we're not than what we are, you know?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, then there's that, that famous jokes about, you know, like, the, you know, that the, the, every Jew needs two synagogues. That's the one I go to, and that's the one I wouldn't step foot in. I think that's right, that oppositional piece.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes even when we have conversations about theology, sometimes it's easier to sort of say, well, I don't believe in the God that is this, this, and this. I'm still trying to figure out what kind of God I believe in. <laughs> But you know, right. what, this doesn't work. For that me. makes
0: sense to me because of the ineffability of God. I mean, it's so hard to know. But yeah. yeah, right.
1: So the unknown becomes right becomes sort of the holiness of the unknown in a in a way.
0: Yeah, but it's that's interesting. So Jason, because as as a general rule, I try to go through life not necessarily my natural inclination, but I try to always flip things into the affirmative and to stay away from the negative. And you know, but you're right. Sometimes it is easier to say, "I'm not. I'm definitely not that. Whatever I am, I'm <laughs> definitely not
1: that." Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, to say for 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 our listeners that we're having this conversation on uh, on um, on Thursday, uh, January seventh, a day after of Congress began certifying the Electoral College count and the um, the violence and death that was seen. Um, at the Capitol in, in Washington, um, so I wa- I'm saying that for context. Maybe I'm also saying that because um, maybe there's this part of me that's also thinking, as an American, you know, as somebody who wants to be an, an activist who who believes in change, who believes in process, like that is not the way <laughs> to do it. So maybe I'm a little extra in that little um, modality. Deborah, I, th- I think you said that that the Reconstructionist movement. Was, was about to put out a, a statement now um, about about the events of yesterday in our country. Do you wanna say a word about that?
0: I was supposed to this afternoon, uh, be giving a talk to a Devar Torah to Jewish members of Congress um, as part of a briefing on uh, Jewish communal priorities. Um, so I had already been thinking about what Devar Torah I would be giving. Um, and that, then that got set aside just because the aftermath of, of of the I would use even stronger terms of I would say insurrection yesterday that happened, and um, so this morning I was up very very early both doing the first draft of it. We, we, we're a very highly collaborative movement uh, because because of a commitment to democracy, which is really uh, Reconstructionism emerged on American soil and the commitment to um, one of the things we take from that is a real sense of pragmatism and a real commitment to democracy. And one of the ways that plays out is that there's a really strong relationship between rabbis and lay people and between staff and volunteers. And um, so I wrote the first draft of of our movement statement and I also wrote the Devar Torah um, kind of as a pastoral resource. And Mm. what we basically said um, was uh, that you know, Reconstructionist Jews, we embrace living both in the Jewish civilization and in the American civilization, and that democracy is at the nexus of that, and that. So we we have a um, an, an obligation to fight for principles, the Jewish principles that we think are expressed and in, um, in in democracy, and and also in a way, so that democracy can continue to be a place where Jews and other minorities can flourish and can bring our full selves. And that what happened yesterday was the antithesis of democracy. It was a perversion of democracy. Um, I would also add that, you know, we also saw yesterday some of the positives with the victory in, uh, of, of, in, in Georgia of people who, here's talking about the positive versus the negative, people who chose to participate fully in our lawful democratic processes rather than, to, um, uh, rather than to storm and rather than to subvert and rather than to attack. So, um, you know, uh, to, to, rising up from Pirkei vote, lo alecha hamlacha oligmor, it's not upon you to finish the work, the, but you're also not free to desist from it, that we have to fight for democracy. Um, and we have to ho- hold perpetrators accountable and we have to work f- to basically, you know, to, 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 to rehabilitate democracy and to create the, the world that we want ourselves and our next generation um, and, and all peoples to live in.
1: Thank you. Well, that's yeah. a long
0: narration. So. No,
1: that's, that's, I think for me, it's been powerful to hear our own secretary of state here in Minnesota, the secretary in, 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 in Georgia, um, you know, whether it's, whether it's sort of synchronized with party lines or across party lines, describe a, a vision of the, the importance of, of, of participation and, and being there and showing up and counting every vote. And um, so that's, that's been something that's inspired me along the way as well.
0: The title, the title of our statement is, we must work to ensure that the January 6th insurrection will not disrupt American democracy. And, you know, it tries to make the case of why this is a Jewish mandate. Because I think at the end of the day, it's not about thoughts and prayers. You know, it's gotta be about action. I mean, Judaism is at heart, I think, an activist religion, separate from professions of faith or identity, at the end of the day, it, it's about what we do. And how we bring it to life, and that's that's in exclusively Jewish spaces. And I would say, I carry with me at all times. That's how I, I, I am a Jew in the streets, even as I'm also an American in the streets.
1: That's beautiful. Um, I, I mean, I'm saying that's beautiful, and it sort of sounds like like um, maybe I'm sort of doing the same thing. Sort of saying thoughts and prayers. It's not just beautiful; it's actually really important, and something that that I think we we need to to, 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 to seize onto. Um, I think I've shared with you, Deborah, that, um, that a few years ago when I learned about the possibility of serving as a director of lifelong learning at Temple Israel here in Minneapolis, I was excited to be a part of, a uh, some 140 year old congregation that, has um, been a cornerstone of Jewish life here in the Twin Cities. Um, that has been um, connected to the Reform movement, um, classically Reform in a lot of ways, and it's in, in so much of its orientation. Um, maybe in a way the, the the movement that in in my personal and professional life, I until I came here had the, had the least experience with. And so for me, part of the excitement in coming was um, was. Um, both bringing my experience and also broadening my experience um, and was also inspired not only by Temple Israel's past, but a vision of a future um, by by Rabbi Zimmerman, our our senior rabbi um, to to keep open the possibility that movement identifications might not be um, such a defining factor in terms of who we are, as Jews, um, Jewishly, Judaism-wise, um, and yet, you know, when I look at our strategic plan um, th- that that was written a few years ago, I found it quite familiar to see words like um, like kihila, maasim, and kiddushah, that sort of this this sense of of community, of how, of how we act, of um, of these moments of uh, transcendence, you know, sort of belonging, behaving, and believing, which seem very familiar from um, My reconstructionist education as well. Um, And I think that sometimes when people think about the behaving, the sort of ma'asim part of of Judaism, we think about lighting four inch tall white Shabbat candles on Friday afternoon or evening. And sometimes we think about um, getting out there and saying black lives matter. Um, So maybe you could talk a little bit more about Jewish Jewish behaving. Um, I know we also were thinking we we talk a little bit about um, some of the resilience work you've been doing, and maybe those things are are connected to each other as well.
0: Yeah, there's a lot in there, Jason. Um, I think that that's exactly right. I, look, I think that movements they're a tool, and they're you know they're they are useful as far as they are useful, and when the, the ways that they are limited. Or limiting, you know, we should set them aside, or we should, we should, you know, work to to figure out what the best tool is, or, um, or overcome them. We have an orientation in the Reconstructionist movement toward collaboration and partnership, and I see it reflected and mirrored back to me from, from all the other movements as well. What 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 is what is powerful at this moment in time about movements, is what, what I would say this most. I know this most deeply from the Reconstructionist movement. There's a shared language, you were just talking about that, some of the language in, 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 in your temple, and there's a shared language, there's a shared approach, there's a shared ideology, which means we can, we can do something like the statement we were just talking about, which is highly collaborative, and we can still turn it around within about 14 hours, you know, that it allows us to both, to enact all of our principles and be swift and expedient and, and effective. There's a, an, an existing network of like-minded people who are pulling toward the same ends. Um, So that can be powerfully impactful. Um, And we saw that, we've seen that really, really, uh, very much during the pandemic, that there are things that reconstruction synagogues need and they can learn from each other, or they can turn to the central organization and get it. And I'm talking at all times with the leaders of the reform movement and the leaders of the conservative movement and, and folks who are not in movements about ways that we can collaborate, ways that we can do things better. So I think it's kind of a yes and approach where, I think there is a there is a there is a reason there are there are there are positive benefits for from certain things about denominations. I would say especially the rabbinical training that you and I received that there's something that's very intentional and very concentrated about training leaders from a particular ideological perspective. And 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 for, for sure for me even though I grew up in the conservative movement, RRC was the correct place for me and I think it would be today, too. Mm-hmm. Um, even as there's an, an increasing number of choices about how and where to be a rabbi. Um, and then there are other things, I think I see it at our camp, which is a 24 seven immersive experience of trying to put out what this is. And then there are other places like on campus, you know, you have that experience as a former Hillel, Hillel, former Hillel rabbi, where a much more expansive um, and a much more adaptive approach it, it maybe maybe more suited. Certainly, in in the, in the in when I, when when I when I'm in a hospital, I'm going to tailor my approach as much as possible to the person who has need of me as a chaplain. Um, that, that rather than argue for from Reconstructionist ideology, yes. And that's kind of my yes. that kind of pragmatic thing. That's how I approach pretty much any problem. So, um, so I think it's. Um, I don't think that I don't think that the time for movements is over. I mean, I, I absolutely don't from what we've been able to do in the pandemic, I think it's actually strengthened what we we do, what we can say. And I think the the opportunities for um, collaboration and for partnership and for imagining what comes next. I, I think that the denominational affiliation need not be exclusive and, and shouldn't be limiting.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you're saying also that like, whether you're talking about st- standing at the side of someone's hospital bed, or having you know, a large conversation about about dialogue across people representing leaders of millions of other people, that that people are at the center, right? And somehow the ideology is to put people at the center, even if they're people exactly who right. you might disagree with in a way.
0: And I, I in, in an interesting way, you know, there's, it's been a truism to say that the, um, pandemic has accelerated certain ten- trends and certain tendencies. And I would say um, one of the positive outcomes at this moment of the unprecedented nature of this time is that Jewish communal leaders are in much deeper conversation with each other and that walls that previously existed, either because of ideological reasons or just t- or turf wars, or just because we're all too busy to, to, to talk to each other, th- those th- those barriers have really... Uh, lowered, and I'm hoping that that will stay. Uh, that that will be a part of the, the the new future.
1: Is there a gem from that that you think you could, you know, if you could impart magically? I don't know, was not much of a Trekkie, but Vulcan mind meld style or something in the in the in the minds and hearts of the American psyche and each individual American, like something that that you've learned along the way that at a time that's divisive in our country and that sometimes we're drawn to like minded people, but but I think trying to, I mean, I think a lot of us are trying to be mindful not to be in echo chambers and really be in in dialogue that really challenging dialogues, how we can approach that.
0: Look, I think that the, the gem is not, it's not, it's not unique, uh, but it's, you know, that I think it is that we are interconnected and we it's folly to imagine otherwise, and it doesn't serve us well. It weakens us. It, 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 it drains resources away. And I'm reminded of, like, the people who, someone who gets a cancer diagnosis, and all of a sudden, uh, a lot of extraneous details fall away, and what is really important becomes crystal clear. And I do feel like in that way, as an organizational leader, COVID has been very clarifying, you know, and very uh, refining in, in, in the way. It's been a crucible. I wouldn't have chosen it. But I and and it comes down to deeply Jewish wisdom that we are all we are all part of the one and we cannot cut ourselves off from that. And if we do, we are possibly offending the divine and definitely hurting ourselves. And I think that's a ways forward. I mean, one is one that's that is a a huge part of my resilience work. Um, I. Started to really immerse myself in thinking about a Jewish approach to resilience right after the 2016 election, um, and it's very much born out of this political moment and this recognition that I really believe that Judaism writ large is about cultivating resilience, and that that that's one of the reasons why the Jewish people have survived across millennia and in the face of many challenge. And I think that that is about looking at at, at Jewish history, but it's also there are practices embedded into Jewish life um, whether it's Shabbat or whether it's the high holiday cycle or whether it's a daily gratitude practice you know all of these things kind of help to cultivate resilience so I think that's one piece of it is whether it's an engagement with with Judaism and Jewish practice or whether it's an engagement with resilience um, through Jewish practices or other I I think that really can help and I think and this, I would point to our project Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. I think it's about um, staying in conversation. And I think it's really about setting aside how we've been talking. You know, like, we, like right now it's been, it's, it's devolved, but it's about like whoever shouts loudest, the presumption that whoever shouts loudest or God forbid breaks through windows and breaks down doors, that's who's gonna win as opposed to sitting quietly and humbly, with trying to set aside our defensiveness and our preconceptions as much as possible, listening um, with the possibility of being transformed rather than for to collect the argument to make you know to de- to refute in order to prove my point. I think it's a it's 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 and we, I don't think I think we're totally ill-equipped, um, totally ill-equipped, and I think we need to learn and practice. And bring to life new ways of being into relation in, in relationship with each other.
1: Seems like the project evolve may may be on its uh, maybe on its shot level and its kind of a, a plain meaning level, pointing toward toward um, the way that that Reconstructionism has classically been defined as as the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people. Um, but from what you're saying now, I guess at least my drash on it is, is um, wow, maybe we've kind of devolved a bit as a as a human family, and um, perhaps we need to begin by evolving back into um, into the real interconnected humans that um, we can be. I mean, certainly we're humans, but the question is like, how, you know, what are we capable of doing that? falls short of seeing one another in in the divine image, like you were saying.
0: As one of the conceptualizers of Evolve, we established it with foundational principles that included things like um, covenantal conversation, the idea that we're in this. You know, like we're talking about responses to yesterday. The Torah I wrote was uh, about, um, you know, it's Parshat Shmot this week and it's about the beginning of the book of Exodus, and which you know we'll be in for several weeks. And you know, hopefully, this will be uh, resonate. You know, will resonate for the listeners whenever whenever you we they hear it. Exodus is about our liberation. Is Exodus about we move from the individual narratives of Genesis into the story of the Jewish, the creation of the Israelite nation, that you know, which who gave birth to the Jewish people. And that is about the experience of first slavery and then the liberation from slavery. But when we were liberated from slavery, we wasn't to go do whatever we wanted. It was, we went, we marched directly to Sinai to receive the Torah and to enter into co- a covenant with the divine. And so this whole idea that like covenant is binding, it is mutual, it is transformative. It is, um, it is, it is deeply, deeply, deeply relational. Um, and that we're in it for the long haul. So to have conversation that is not is, that is in the service of building up that kind of connection and that kind of long view—that's what I think is is really is really necessary.
1: Thank you, thank you, Deborah, Doctor Rabbi Waxman. How can um, our listeners um, hear more of you? Um, find more of your teachings online, on podcasts, and other places.
0: Oh, thank you for asking. So I am i am um, so proud and of this project called Hashi Venu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. It's a podcast that has uh, more than 40 episodes um, and with really wonderful teachers, some, many rabbis, not only um, scholars and psychologists, um, to, ta- to to explore different uh, approaches toward creating uh, resilience. Um, there's a whole host of my writing and some, some videos on the reconstructingjudaism.org website, if you search for, uh, if you search for me, um, they'll they'll come up attached to, usually attached to my bio.
1: That's awesome. There were any questions that you want to leave us with at this auspicious time for our country, for our people, or um, words of, uh, words of comfort or words of um, a a charge as we, as we, as we move forward?
0: Should I, I could share the closing paragraph of the Devartora I wrote for I wrote this morning at six o'clock in the morning when I couldn't sleep.
1: That'd be great, that'd be great.
0: In our Parsha this week, we see Moses encountering the burning bush, discerning the voice of the divine from within and taking up the fight for what is just and liberatory in his generation. And we now stand facing the greatest challenges of our generation, a new reckoning with systemic racism, restoring the physical and economic health of our country after the pandemic, combating attacks on American democracy from within, reestablishing a shared sense of communitas and confronting the climate crisis with resilience, equity, and creativity. As fires, both literal and metaphorical rage around us, it is our responsibility to to discern, as did Moses, what is just and liberatory. We must dedicate ourselves toward effecting an equitable pandemic recovery, dismantling systemic racism, working for climate justice. We must do so in a covenantal fashion with keen awareness of and commitment to relationship and mutuality. We must act as heirs of our legacy of liberation to ensure that we fulfill the opportunities and obligations of our freedom as Jews and as Americans to create an America where all can flourish.
1: Wow. Deborah, thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for sharing that. I'm, I'm so honored to know that um, you are one of the great leaders of this generation who can also um, take Judaism, uh, take Jewish civilization at, at, at its best um, for, to be a cause for good um, in our nation, in our world, um, for our for our elected leaders in particular at this um, at this time. Thanks for being here.
0: Oh, thank you for having me, Jason. And hopefully, things will only get better from from here on in.
1: Amen. Amen. Can you hear some? Thank you for listening to this week's beautiful episode of Temple Talks. As always, we love receiving your comments and questions. Please email them to tmoss at templeisrael.com, and I will make sure that they reach their proper destination. Please subscribe to the podcast, share this episode with a friend, and we look forward to our next Temple Talk with you.